Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hey, hey, welcome to the Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you are a returning subscriber, hey, friend, you look amazing today. I hope you're having an awesome day. You see what happens when you subscribe to the Ethics Experts? You get a bonus greeting on every single episode. So gently touch that subscribe button and join us as we change the world by making our workplaces better. I am here today with Elliot Schreiber. He is a former executive uh, academic and consultant for uh, governance and reputation management. He's an author. He has a, uh, a really interesting background, a really interesting perspective. So welcome. Really uh, excited to get you on here today. Thanks, Nick. We really appreciate having me. Absolutely. So I'd love to just kind of dive into a little bit about your book. I think your book is a little bit revolutionary in terms of how you look at reputation management relative to, um, to risk. And you made an interesting comment um, on LinkedIn um, about a speech, I think, Allison Taylor was doing, and she touched on some some sort of similar kind of topic. So let's just kind of dive in at a really kind of bird's eye level, thirty thousand foot view of you know your book and the angle you took with that. So um, yeah, the the uh, the view that Allison was taking recently at Columbia University is exactly online in terms of not managing reputation risk. That's sort of like, and this is the premise of my book, managing reputation risk to most companies is crisis management. That's like saying to someone, what's your fire prevention uh, program? And they go, we call the fire department. <laughs> right. Uh, the, you know, the, the place is burning down. You manage risk and reputation risk is a risk of risks. And so you don't have a risk if you don't have an opportunity. So the reason I called my book the yin and yang of reputation management, because reputation and risk are two sides of the same coin. And companies are trying to enhance their reputation. What I find problematic, and this was my corporate background, in my corporate experience, I was responsible for most of my career in both corporate strategy and then in reputation management, running marketing, running PR, advertising, investor relations, and other areas for global companies. What I found problematic is that the company thought reputation and reputation risk were all about PR and marketing. What it should be about is aligning the company so that it does the kinds of things and acts the way it wants people to believe it acts. So we're seeing a whole realm of people reacting now against what we're calling greenwashing. Mm -hmm. That is the absolute epitome of bad public relations reputation management. You're telling people what you want them to believe. You're trying to persuade them, but you're doing nothing behind the scenes right. to really change the company. So what my book was really about, and what I've been trying to do and working with companies globally is to tell them this is an enterprise-wide activity. It starts with your values, which are we make every day. Those are selective choices we make. The culture of the company, because that's where you either create value or you create risk. And it flows all the way through to what you do about your brand, how you bring rep, uh, risk management into a uh, into effect, how you inform your board so that your board has a better perspective of the various stakeholders you have, because it's stakeholder value. When they perceive value, you get value. If stakeholders don't believe you create value, you create risk. So let's pause on that. If st shareholders don't believe you create value, they believe then you create risk implies that then value, at least from the public or from the market standpoint, is really kind of in the eye of the beholder. And I think when Absolutely. you do that, it ends up, to your point, kind of collapsing these two um, areas of focus that many times are not connected. But to your point, they're two sides of the same coin. Absolutely. I mean, so every one of us, you, me, everyone, we have a certain expectation. So when we say what's a stakeholder, to me, my definition of a stakeholder is anyone who believes Oh. that they have a stake and an expectation from a company. Now, let's take from the environmental standpoint. I have a lot of expectations of companies. They may not consider me a stakeholder, but damn, I can do a lot of damage to them. Totally. If, uh, and so can you. So 
what we've always considered stakeholders is only what the company considers stakeholders. But right. from the time, think about what has happened from the time of the internet. The internet did an important thing that was very similar to what we found in historically with the Gutenberg Bible. It stripped information from inside of a company and pushed it out into the market. So people believe they have an incredible amount of information. Much of it could be misinformation, but to them it's information. Yeah, it doesn't matter, right? And they act on it. And so what I say to companies is every single stakeholder can help you create value and every one of them can help you destroy value. And you need to make certain you understand who you're dealing with. And so instead of listening to the loudest voice or the squeakiest wheel, what I've been trying to do is help companies become much more strategic in looking at their stakeholders, understanding that stakeholders are no longer monolithic. They are right. becoming polarized. And what I believe is happening, I, I defined in my book, reputation as an assessment by a stakeholder that you've delivered value to them better than a competitor could. Okay. So in some industries, that's a race to the bottom. It's the least, you know, the, Price, right. the best, worst choice that you can, yeah. you can make. What airline should I take in the U.S.? Or right. what oil company should I deal with? I mean, um, so those are small gradations. But in most situations, what we're finding is, and this is research around the world, is that employees, customers, and increasingly investors are moving to what we consider values. In other words, you align with what I believe should be the way things are done. And we're moving away from that. So in a polarized world, what companies need to do is to understand that the people who align with their values can help them create tremendous value. So that's a really exactly. good, yeah, that's a really good point because this new sort of normal, the new realm that we're in, there's a fractalization of this monolith that is a stakeholder. There's a polarization that's happening as well. And then what's going along with that is a lot of this, for lack of a better term, I'll just call it sort of greenwashing, um, yeah. which really seems to be rooted down in, I don't know, it's like a, a trying to be all things to all people or it's an inauthenticity. Um, it's, a, it's an expression of values that might not actually be authentic. And what that ends up creating is a circumstance where I guess put it this way. It seems like a lot of organizations are kind of being a little bit lukewarm. And in yep. doing that, they're not really appealing to any stakeholder. And then they're sort of lost in this, you know, nether world that is this, you know, middle of, uh, <laughs> it, you know, the middle. Um, well, what, yeah. What, so what you put your finger on is exactly the problem with reputation is that if you define it the way the public relations industry prefer, is, there's a, a public out there that assesses right. what we do. So a public. Now, what is that? It's going to be lukewarm. It has to be. Right. So it, that's an aggregated view. But in that public are your employees, your customers, regulators, investors, the woman who, husband and wife who live next to your plant who are concerned whether or not their right. kid is breathing <clears throat> toxic air. All of these people can, are concerned with this. Every one of them has a different expectation. Employees don't want the same thing as a customer. Right. They want different kinds of value. And so you really have to understand not what you want people to believe their value is, but understand what they expect from you. Sometimes you can't deliver it and you're going to lose those people. They're not going to work for you. They're not going to buy from you or whatever. And what I'm saying to companies is you're, it's fine as long as you can look companies are in business first to survive and then to grow and they, they have to have money even if you're a nonprofit yeah right you need money to become a nonprofit i've been on the boards of many nonprofits so um you're going to lose employees you're going to lose customers but you'll gain the people who really are committed to your values and these are not the values that companies hang on the walls and say, you know, we're one team, we believe in equality and everything. If you really believe that all people are equal, then you better act like that. If you really believe that uh, uh, gays, transsexuals should be treated as humans, and what, then you can't stand on the sideline. 
So let's take the example of Disney. That was just a completely naive step by their former CEO who said, my employees urged me to take action. Well, at the same time, there were a lot of employees who didn't urge them to take action. I think they should have said something, but they should have anticipated that what they were up against was a governor in Florida who was going to use that because he was looking for wedge issues. They right. walked right into it. So how do you do that? You step back and you assess. And how do you assess better now? The problem is that historically we've had companies in silos. So they call in the head of public relations, they call in the head of legal, they help call in the head of government affairs. Each of them gives their perspective. We need a cross-functional approach because right. society is much too complicated for any single discipline to understand. And boards need that perspective. They need to hear how their strategic decisions are going to be received by the different stakeholders they have. I mean, boards are shocked when they run into reputation risk because they're not understanding how to really assess it. So let's look at, you know, I think something that's pretty interesting is this thing that's happened with Bud Light over the right. last, I don't know, it's like two or three weeks or something. And I'd love to hear your kind of perspective <laughs> on it. And we don't have to get into whether they should have done, done it or shouldn't have done right. it. I'd rather get into like, how would they have, because let me get let me get to this. It seems like everyone is kind of shocked at Bud Light by this move. And I've seen a right. bunch of videos of, you know, b essentially Bud Light boycotts, like no one's buying Bud Light and all that kind of stuff. Right. So it seems like there was maybe a miscalculation with the angle that they took and maybe not really understanding what their true stakeholders actually cared about or what their true expectations were. So if we can just look at that as like a case study, that could be kind of an interesting way to illustrate how they maybe should have handled it under, you know, through the lens that you've been sort of, you know, an advocate for. Sure. Okay. So from what I understand, you had a very bright, uh, well-educated vice president of marketing, mm -hmm. and I forget her name, yep. but extremely competent. She had come from, uh, I think it was General Mills or Johnson yep. & Johnson. She was in a consumer, consumer brand. Yeah, yeah. Very, very. She was brought in, and what she believed she was told was that she had to expand a dying brand. Bud Light has been losing customers. She wanted to make it, as she said, more inclusive. Now, this is the problem that happens a lot of times in companies. What is the expectation you have when I say inclusive? Maybe a very different concept. I don't know, concept. yeah. It's I so think. subjective, right? So, I mean, inclusive could be, we want rich and poor. We want- Old and young. And, we want Hispanics. Yeah. We want, who knows what they meant by inclusive? She took it very differently. What she, so she went on her expectations. She also didn't quite understand that Bud Light is not a brand that you expand by shock value. Mm -hmm. This is not Benetton. Yeah, good point. This is, this is, this is an old dying brand. And I've right. dealt with old dying brands before. You have to go back to the core attributes that made them successful in the first place. Bud Light is a bar brand in college towns because it's cheap and it is considered, and I hate these terms, but quote unquote, a blue collar beer. Yeah. So it's take those two. The college kids probably don't care, but that group that looks at themselves as the beer drinkers they're not looking for expansion or inclusion or anything else. So also we have a crazy time going on. Yep. We have a lot of people who are looking for wedge issues. Um, Good point. And we can say, you know, everything we do, we need to know that we're working in a crazy time. So you better know very clearly what your values are because you need that touchstone. Now, if Bud Light, really believed in inclusion, really believed in inclusion, they'd say, screw you to the people who are reacting. We're very proud of what we did. They obviously had a disconnect and the woman lost her job and everybody else. And now they're saying, we're going to get the senior management more involved. Remember, 
Bud and Anheuser-Busch are no longer owned in the United States. They're owned in Belgium. Mm -hmm. There's a board over there. I deal a lot with Europe. They think we're nuts. Yeah, right. I mean, they, they just don't understand. So they're not going to touch this with a 10-foot pole. They don't want to get involved in American politics. So Bud now is being boycotted and people are shooting up. The crazy thing is they're buying Bud Light to protest it. They're probably giving it more attention. Yeah. In most cases, what we found was have been that when there are calls for boycotts, they're actually boycotts. So mm. let's take um, Chick-fil-A, which was a boycott was called years ago because they had made their, their religious principles were anti-gay. There was actually a boycott there, there for a short period of time. People rallied to their cause and yep. then it dropped off. The same thing with um uh, I'm trying to think of the Spanish um, uh, consumer products that the, the CEO came out in favor of Trump. And so there was a huge outcry and people said, let's boycott um, their, the, the beans and everything yeah, else. Goya, Goya, I think. Goya, yeah. Goya thank you. Their, their sales went up for about three weeks, then it dropped off again. Interestingly, it never changed for Hispanics. They didn't boycott. Right. I mean, it was they were unaffected by it. I mean, we need we we want uh, Spanish food. They make Spanish food. We're also we're going to go to get it. Heinz, you know, whatever. Yeah, right. So it's companies need to understand they need a touchstone. They really need to know what their true values are, because they're going to have to more than ever before okay. in history. Go back to that to make decisions and explain their decisions to a very disgruntled group of people say and be able to say if you don't like us don't buy our stock don't buy our products whatever maybelline did the same thing with uh uh with the same uh woman as bud light they're called for a boycott it's not going to happen because maybelline has a complete they've been involved in you know drag shows and everything it's not going to matter as much. Bud Light just walked right into it because they're just a prime case. So, but let me ask you this: Like, do you think yeah, sure. they're, they're a prime case and they walked into it because they didn't understand the stakeholder, or yes. or was it because they were lukewarm on their values? Like, I'm kind of thinking of like, how do we attack this? How would I tell somebody who's in this same kind of a situation who's going to be making a kind of a move or trying to understand this sort of risk, reputational? Uh, risk and sort of internal risk, um, you know, um, you know, the merging of these two two things in your framework, is it that they just need to understand more about who the stakeholders actually are and what they actually care about relative to the brand and how the brand has maybe drifted over time? Or is it really like that's a that's a fool's errand because you're never going to be able to get all those insights and really get that dialed in. And so rather than going that sort of bottom up approach, it's maybe better to do a top down approach and say, listen, you know, uh, whatever be damned, whatever be damned, my values are X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to live by these things and the chips are going to fall where they may. And I'm just going to pursue these things authentically. Like, what do you think about right. that? The, the latter, the, the latter are companies like Patagonia, uh, Chick-fil-A, Hobby Lobby, and others. Okay. I may not like Chick-fil-A and, and, and I, I'll show my liberal biases. Um, I may not like what they do, but I have to respect that they live by a set of values that think about Chick-fil-A. They will not open on Sunday. They give up a, a lot of revenue yeah, to stick to their value. That's right. Patagonia backed out of um, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, a huge customer base for them because they didn't like the position that the owners took on climate change. That is sticking to your values, yeah. saying I'm willing to lose money because this is what I really believe in. Most companies are not there, but companies, what I've been saying to them is everything, what, what we call values are selective choices. They really are. You, they determine how we see the world, the choices we make. So if you say I have to cater to shareholders only, that is a value statement. That is not a legal requirement. Mm -hmm. You can be attuned to, I don't care whether I have a great employee uh, base because I'll hire the next employees. That's a value statement. 
So companies are going to have to really get down to what do they really believe in because they're going to need that in these times. The second thing is you don't want to be led by stakeholders, but you want to be able to meet their expectations better than customers or competitors or you're going to lose you're going to lose out in the marketplace. Yeah. So between your values and how you're dealing with stakeholders, I, you know, people ask companies ask me all the time, what do we do if certain stakeholders tell us they want us to do certain things and it really takes us off of what we really believe is the core principles of our company. And I said, what would you do if your child came home from school and said, everybody's cheating, so I have to cheat to get grades? What would your you have to you have to have certain principles. So if your stakeholders are demanding things that you don't believe you can commit yourself to, you need to be able to explain it and hopefully help them understand why you made that decision and have them respect you for that. Um, you don't have to do exactly what they want and be willing to lose some stakeholders in the process because not, I mean, we're seeing this with employees. Well, employees are leaving places and not wanting to join places that they do not like the association. Affinity is really important to an employee. You want to work for a place that you can be proud of. You don't want to go out and you know meet your friends and they go, "Are you still working for that company?" Right. I mean, that's it. so. When companies lose reputation, top talent leaves. They really, I mean, that's historically been researched. Up, and you know, that's who flood, floods out the doors. Your best employees, because every the best employees know they're incredibly employable, and headhunters know those people when they when things get bad. When reputation gets hit, headhunters come in. I've seen it. I was the recipient. Headhunters come in and they pluck. It's like, you know, they see the sharp, the blood in the water. Uh, they're coming in and they're plucking out all the good talent. When that happens, customers leave. So it's a, it's a ripple effect. Companies have to think through it. And they also have to look at, which they're not good at, and I've been trying to help with the work that I'm doing, how to understand the interactions or what we call externalities mm -hmm. of stakeholders so that you understand that there are risks and then there are secondary risks. So if one group gets upset, what does it do to others? What will it, what will it, so if your employees get really upset and don't like what's going on in the company and you really demoralize them, the first people that are gonna get affected are your customers. They sense it. I used to be responsible for the research that the companies did on both employee satisfaction and customer satisfaction. The relationship between employee satisfaction and customer satisfaction is incredibly strong from a correlation standpoint. So what do we call financial results? They're proxies. It's a proxy of how well we've done with our employees and our customers. So you better know where you're creating your value. You're not creating it with shareholders. They give you a thousand dollars. If you don't create shareholders, value, get the value that you've created. To your point, that's yeah, they, uh, they that's a create, that's a trailing result. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, they don't. Shareholders do not create value. They extract value. Yep. And so the way you should serve shareholders and give them value is to create value through your employees and your customers. So you said a word before. Um, I mean, that's such a reframe in and of itself kind of deconstructing how value ends up sort of flowing through the organization, where it shows up relative to the financial statements and who ends up, you know, generating it versus who ends up getting it. Um, I think that's pretty profound. And again, you know, it's just such a small sort of tweak or a, such a small sort of shift in how, how we look at it that ends up opening up all these new connections. Um, you said this word affinity, and I was kind of struck when you were talking about this, you know, where you were saying like, you know, companies are... Um, you know, they're kind of behind the eight ball a little bit, or they're, they're sort of behind the times. They're not, they're not willing to sort of put their money where their mouth is relative to what they actually believe. 
and I understand the challenge because a company is just a collection of a bunch of individuals. So like, what is, what, what does the company believe? Is it just a, the sum total average? I don't really know the answer to that. But the point is, uh, the human beings inside the organization, the employees, they are willing to put their money where their mouth is immediately. And I think to your point, we saw that during the great resignation, right? 68% of people changed jobs because they didn't believe the values of the organization anymore. 49% said that they would change jobs, even take a pay cut if they could join an organization that authentically lives its values. So it's like the people are tuned into it. The people understand that affinity is critical and they're willing to do something about it. Two questions. Why is it taking a the, the our company so long to like get it? Um, and then what do you think has changed to where now affinity on an individual basis is really a catalyst for someone to you know change jobs and you know vote with their feet as they say? So on the first part, I have a theory. And my theory is that what you see going on within companies now is similar to what's going on in reactionary politics. You have the last vestiges of a generation, mine, holding on to power. And when, when, I was, when I was an executive and I was a senior executive in companies, we believed that you had to be in the office. I mean, the, the concept of yeah. someone working from home was just, unless you were a salesperson, you had to be in the office. And so when somebody says you have to come back to the office and employees know they were working at home for two years during the pandemic and they did their jobs. And at the same time, they were able to do something that is very interesting. They could see their companies as a reflection differently than when they were embedded into it. And so they started looking at the company and saying, wait a minute, I'm really happy not being in the office and playing. I don't want to go back there. Yeah. And so they left. People say, well, you know, they left because of whatever. They left because the values that they had did not match with the company's values. Uh, so I think it's going to take. It's going to take time for people, for companies to understand, and it's going to take a new generation of people who understand that you can work remotely and still get the job. We don't have to see people. To know, I mean, I, I've been a college, I've taught MBA, executive MBA. I'm not there when they write their papers. Right. I'm judging the results. Well, the same thing should be what happens with an employee. You're judging them on what they've delivered rather than what. So if they were sitting at home drinking coffee, but did an amazing job, fine. Yeah. I mean, this concept of, I mean, who was it? Boris Johnson the former PM in UK said, you know, employees are getting up and going to the refrigerator and eating cake and they're doing everything but working. Well, what the hell does he know? Yeah, how do you I know mean, that? I mean, how does he know? And first of all, that is, if there's a lack of productivity, don't blame it only on employees. Come on. <laughs> productivity cannot be pushed off on who is motivating those people to not want to come into the office or whatever. You know, it. we've always, it, it's an old HR thing that we used to say employees leave for more money. Everyone knows that's not why they leave. They leave because they don't like their boss. They don't like the values of the company. They have aspirations that can't be met or whatever. Money is not why people leave. And that's not why they're reacting to companies. It's not about money. And to that point, it's pretty rare when someone changes jobs, changes jobs that they have in order of magnitude change in earnings. Right. You know, it's usually something that's relatively nominal. So to your point, look, obviously those things happen where, you know, the dream of your life, you know, the the job of your dreams falls in your lap and you're making twice as right. much money. I'm just saying that's not right. like half. That's not the usual. Absolutely right. not. So to your point, the straw that breaks the cam the camel's back is that Chinese water torture of I don't believe this anymore. I can't stand these people. I can't stand what my company's doing. I feel I feel gross taking a paycheck from this company. I feel like I'm selling out. When when employees start to feel that way, of course they start looking. And now we have um, labor mobility higher than it's ever been. The cost of switching jobs is lower than it's ever been. It's not that costly for me to, you know, send my laptop back to my uh, old employer, get a new laptop from my new employer, and set up at the same kitchen table that I've been working at for the last two years. It's just not that yeah, costly. I mean 
And I mean, think about yeah, think about the investment banks, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan Chase. Goldman Sachs, quote unquote, ordered all their employees back, and about half of them said no. I mean, now think what it I know the reaction. Mm -hmm. The reaction because they said so much as much. Look, you come to JP Morgan Chase or, or Goldman Sachs because you want to make a lot of money. That's right. your motivation. We want you back in the office. And if you're a winner, you'll come back. And if you're a loser, well, right there, you may bludgeon some people to come back, but you've basically said, if you don't want to really come back, we consider you a loser. Those are not the kinds of motivations that younger employees and younger people that I know are being motivated by. They may have worked at one time, but this concept of you better come to work because there's no other job available. Um, you know, we've got problems. What what I'm really concerned about also is all of this talk about uh, working from home is great for about a 25 to 30 percent of the market. Mm -hmm. Think about all the people who never could leave their jobs during COVID. That's right. Um, they were on the front lines. They don't they can't work from home. And with the anger that we have in the marketplace, it's the front line that's taking it, whether they be flight attendants or checkout people or whatever. They're the ones taking the abuse that we've created for that by just messing around. I mean, we everybody keeps saying, you know, it after COVID, we would go back to some new normal. There is no new normal. We're society is constantly changing. Stop trying to find a normal and manage what is today. Right. Um, and I mean, how polarizing is that when, especially when you have mixed group organizations where you have some essential workers and you have some others, and you know, you have this perhaps this massive contingency of people within your organization who are probably like uh, strongly rolling their eyes about all this work from home complaining when they're like, I've been coming in for the last two, three years, you know? Oh, I, well, I think, I think the, the, these differences between, um, income disparity, uh, computer literacy disparity. Mm -hmm. I, I was in a, I was in a group that we were, it, it was a group of individuals that pulled our money to give it to uh, for educational purposes. And I was not aware that if you're not computer literate by the time you're in third grade, you're you're done. Your literacy capacity and your it affects even whether you're going to have any success in life. These wild, people get wild. pushed onto the sideline, and so we were giving computers and putting people computers, um, getting computer um, people to work with the kids to teach them how to do that helping the parents to learn how to use the computer. These, these disparities are growing and growing. And if we care about the economic system we call capitalism, it's not going to survive if we don't do something about it. You think so, huh? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, does, is, is capitalism the way it was envisioned at first? When I entered the workplace, we we companies bragged about how much taxes they paid, uh, how many people they employed. Uh, they understood that you had to. I mean, Johnson and Johnson's cradle was not that unusual at one time. That you know the responsibilities were to your employees, your customers, your community, and if you did well, your shareholders were were well served. All that got flipped as we got very hungry. Um, the Wall Street investment bankers who thought capitalism was about extracting value for individuals. Mm -hmm. Self How much money can I make? And so what you ended up with is I'm okay, screw you. <laughs> you know, I really don't. And so the disparity keeps growing and growing. And that is really problematic. I was on the, I was a trustee of the Council for Economic uh, Development, which is a Washington think tank that actually created the Marshall Plan back in the 40s. Oh, wow. And one of the things we looked at was, can can capitalism survive? Well, the, the group ended up putting out four papers because what you found were all these executives, some of them saying, well, the problem is lobbyists. The other group saying the problem is we don't let individuals make enough money without all the regulation, you know, 
it broke down into these factions. Um, but the real problem is com what companies do is under attack. So I think one of the things you and I first talked to start talking about is all this, these polls like the Edelman trust barometer mm -hmm. that says companies are more trusted than anybody, any other institution. Well, that's compared to what? I mean, yeah, it's, I know. it's a race. First of all, I don't. Yeah, and I don't it, believe it either. So and that 70 percent of people want an executive to speak out on issues. Well, did they ask them whether or not it matters whether the executive speaks out on issues they agree exactly. with or disagree with? Yeah, I so, want them to speak out on my issues for sure. I'm sure 70 exactly. percent would say that. But and you want them to speak out on any and, issue? I mean, that's crazy. Right. Exactly. You know, just stay away from from the rest. So, you know, are there issues that companies should speak out on? It is going to depend on the business they're in and the tolerances of their different stakeholders. I mean, if you are in a business like Bud Light where there's no urgency, people don't want you speaking out, it's one thing. But, you know, once again, if you're Patagonia, it's the expectation is you built your business on environment uh, environmental concerns, you better speak out on it. Well, yeah, and they also have sort of like led with that beyond yeah like most other companies in their space, right? Like that's their thing. So then if that's the big thing, you have to hold on to the big thing. So if your big thing is environmentalism or your big thing is social, social activism or your big thing is religion or quality or whatever that, that is, right. you have to hold on to the thing that made your brand. Otherwise your brand is gonna drift and it's gonna get diluted and then you know it's gonna, it's gonna taste like nothing anymore, you know? I think that's one of the reasons if you look at the tech industry that Apple, Apple has not been laying off a lot of people Apple's doing extremely well because Apple was built on a concept. Right. It was built on understanding and meeting people's desires for technology that that is easy to use, fun to use, um, cool. gives them access to the world. It, yep. So they know that, yeah, they've made mistakes. Every company makes sure. mistakes. But they know where to go. Nike knows where. Nike knows what it's its core principles are. Most companies are adrift because they were based on a value proposition that said, my value is I sell certain things to people. And if they buy it, that's, you know, they show my value without knowing that when the market gets very competitive, people are going to make much more selective choices. So you better give them a real reason why you will be the one that they want to go to. And increasingly, it's, I want to identify with that properly. I, I mean, look look what's happened in the Tesla market with the number of customers who say, I want to get out of my Tesla because Elon Musk is embarrassing me with, with, as driving a Tesla. That will The same thing happen. happened with, uh, with Kanye West. He had a massive brand and he came out with all, all that anti-Semitic stuff. And I don't see anyone wearing Yeezys at all anymore. No, and, and Adidas uh, is, you know, they lost a huge amount of money. Totally. And, you know, talk about a company without a core guiding principle. Adidas waited. Look how long they waited to cut ties with Kanye West. They waited until the pressure mounted. Yep. Yes, they said, oh, it was difficult because of all the whatever. I've dealt with re retail supply chains. You can take more principle than that. I mean, and it was really terrible because the foundation of people were re reminding Adidas when they were founded back in Nazi Germany. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I, I they may kind of go, come on, we're not Nazis. But they didn't understand that they were selling into a multiracial society in which, I mean, how long has Kanye West been off his meds? I mean, to, to be crazy. I mean, yeah. he was saying things before, before he got into the crazy totally. stuff that should have been planned of how are we going to back out of this guy? Yeah, it's just, uh, it's, it's just this, such this massively interesting time. Um, an employee or a company's brand is just its reputation. And, you know, your model of reputational risk is really kind of brand risk. And so when I think about brand or I think about reputation, there has always been this gap historically between sort of the external brand and the internal brand. The internal brand is what I would call, 
you know, you know, if you think about a balloon, there's an external surface and an internal surface. Well, a balloon now is very thin. It's, a, you know, it's the same wall. And that's always yeah. been the case uh, in terms of our internal brand, which is our employee experience or our culture and our external brand. And I love your, I love the model that, you know, says, you know, shareholders, our value creation, uh, that happens at the end of the equation. There's all these inputs in our multivariate equation that ends up generating this output. And it seems like when brands, when companies get overly focused on an output, an output that they can't necessarily control because it's due to a complex multivariate equation that has more vari variables than any human being can sort of like with a high confidence interval put the appropriate weights in, right. they then end up um, leading, you know, they many they many times lead to a bunch of unintended consequences when they overly try to affect this thing. If you go back to Johnson and Johnson, where they said we're going to be great for our employees and for our clients and for our communities, and if we do that right, we're going to generate value that then will lead to the shareholders. I happen to think that that's the appropriate sort of algorithm or the appropriate sort of framework to sort of think through those different stakeholders and where the value ends up going in what order. Um, but you see so many more organizations flipping that on its head and saying, we're here to make, make money over everything. And when that becomes your God, when money becomes your God, then, and that God is something that you can't actually affect or control. You can only really control those inputs. It leads to this kind of shooting from the hip or these, you know, moving too late or moving too fast or, uh, whatever. But that collapsing of that, of that of that barrier or that sort of wall between our internal brand and our external brand has really created a, I know you hate this word, it's really created a new normal or a new, uh, a new economy that nobody really knows how to navigate through. And in that whole thing, there's been a tremendous amount more, uh, there's been a tremendous amount of power that's now been democratized to those people inside of the organization, right? We're not a monolith. Uh, we care about affinity. We care about an organization whose values resonate with our values. We want purposeful work. We want belonging. And the cost of me changing jobs is not not now I have to sell my home, pack up my you know van and move to a different country or, or to a different state or a different side of the country. I just log into a new computer. So that right. that's so disruptive for the last 30, 50 years of how businesses have operated in this you know profit my, myopia. Right. So let's take this brand and, and reputation because you're on to <clears throat> one of the key arguments I make in, in the book is that historically we thought about brand as only about consu the, the consumer right. or the customer. Right. What is a brand? A brand is a promise. It's a promise of performance, whether it be functional or it's going to make you thinner, it's going to make you more handsome, it's going to, you know, whatever. That's the promise. People, when those promises are made, expectations are set. And that's the, the expectations that are used by people to judge reputation. So the problem in a lot of the companies, let's take Bud Light, is that historically, these have been product brands that have cared about only their consumer. Correct. They don't realize that every product brand is, in effect, a company brand. But not every company brand is a product brand. It's talking about the general. People are starting to say, wait a minute, I, I don't like this association with different things. Now, we this is not just a new phenomenon. It, uh, Unilever ran into this problem when they had their Dove campaign for women's beauty. Mm -hmm. And they also were making Axe. The, the, uh, that Axe body to spray, the most misogynistic ASC. scent you can get. Right. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so people said, how can you have both? And they said, we're a company that puts all the power in the brand manager. And so the Dove, whatever. Well, they eventually realized they, they can't live like that. They yep. can't have Dove yep. out there telling women that inner beauty is more important than external beauty and then have acts that basically is misogynistic. And so they've they changed an awful lot of that. Many, many years ago, I was asked by Procter & Gamble to look at their structure and whether, you know, Procter & Gamble has about 200 products, but you don't know that most of them are Procter & Gamble unless you look at the back and mm -hmm. see Made in Cincinnati, Ohio by Procter & Gamble. Those, those worked as long as the brands didn't cause problems for one another. 
Yeah, and as long as they weren't taking too hard of an angle that led to sort of some implied right. contradiction. Where they did have issue was that if you look at what they call their trade, the Walmarts, the supermarkets that carry their brands, mm -hmm. they were concerned with Procter & Gamble because they were giving huge shelf space. And so what we found was that's where their concern had to be is more than the individual consumer because what if you bought Tide mm -hmm. and somebody else was buying Pampers and Pampers did something you didn't like, well, there's a spill over there, but I mean, that those two examples. But they could separate their brands and, and historically consumer brands were there because we thought people only cared about the individual product. That has been changing tremendously. Mm -hmm. And brand now means how you define your, as you said, your employee brand. It's your customer. There's a brand for uh, investors. Uh, they see it and those better, those better connect. Yeah, they better jive. Because Yeah, they better jive. You can't be saying one thing to one group. I mean, the world is way too, too transparent. Yeah, I think, you know, maybe we're, you know, maybe I'm just saying this a different way, but the stakes are just so much higher now. The stakes are higher oh, yeah, for brands. Absolutely. It's, we're in a polarized time. Uh, our economy is super transient. There's a ton of power in the hands of uh, the average worker. We have 80% of our workforce is going to be millennials and Gen Zs in the next, you know, handful of years. Those right. folks have a different prioritization of what matters, what they're looking for from work. And, you know, there's many organizations that are still bringing these sort of old structures or these old mentalities into this new sort of post-COVID economy. And I think we're going to see a ton of faux pas like this. You made an interesting point that um, there's sort of this separation between or we assumed, you know, in the past that there was a separation between sort of the company brand and the individual product brand. Um, who owns uh, Anheuser-Busch? Is it ABM? It's owned by Bev. Uh, it's the Bev B-E-V. I, 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 I can't remember their 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 actual. Yeah. It's a Belgian. It's a Belgian. Right, company. but they own a bunch of companies like oh, Anheuser Busch. So they own they own uh, they own uh, Molson from Canada. They mm -hmm. own a huge a number of beers. But what I've seen and and, and, uh, and they also liquor and stuff. Beers, yeah. yeah, yeah, and. So it's interesting. It seems like, and again, I don't know if this is true, but just a couple of these TikToks that I have seen over the last couple of weeks uh, about this, you know, Bud Light boycott, it seems to have like, it seems to have turned into like an Anheuser-Busch boycott. So like all of these sort of Anheuser-Busch brands that this Belgian company bought, it seems like that boycott is trickling out to them. But interestingly, it doesn't seem to have gone beyond the sort of Anheuser company level to the broader sort of holding co level that owns all of these companies. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because the identity of these things just sort of psychologically rests in that Anheuser brand and that's where the buck stops in sort of most, you know, stakeholders' minds? Um, and they yeah, just I haven't made the connection that there's this other umbrella that might have their favorite tequila, you know, in it or their favorite vodka or something. Like, what do you think about that? I don't think most people know that Anheuser-Busch is not an American-owned St. Louis-based company anymore. Okay. It is. I mean, how long has Anheuser-Busch been around? Almost 100 years. A long years. time, yeah. So it, is, it is truly an American brand. Um, and these conglomerates that are buying up, like Diageo in, in Britain that, bought, that owns so many different brands, uh, those are sort of that's too big an issue for it to percolate up. Yeah, yeah, okay. But I think this Anheuser-Busch thing is at one time, you could contain that to the bud level. Okay. You could, it, people could say, well, look, it doesn't affect anybody else and it wouldn't have worried companies. This is showing the fact that with social media, we know in, infinitely more. And all of a sudden people are tracking what else is owned by Anheuser-Busch? Well, damn it, I'm not going to drink. Yeah, right. If so it's starting to trickle up. That was That is a phenomenon that is relatively new. Mm -hmm. And it shows that companies really do need to look at the interactions of all their brands and this concept that we can isolate a brand from other brands, which 20 years ago, if you taught an MBA class, that was the thinking. 
we can isolate these brands and right. if something we can say it has nothing to do with well you can't say that anymore it is it's a people are holding the company responsible yeah it's just uh it's an interesting it's just such an interesting kind of conundrum um so if we're talking to somebody inside their organization who understands what we're talking about we're talking about there's not these 50 different brands because you have 50 different products uh, there's not an internal brand and an external brand. There's not an internal reputation and external. There's not an external employee. You know, there's not an external client experience versus an employee experience. It's really just one experience, which then implies that there needs to be a. Uh, it, mean, it needs to be homogenous. It needs to be consistent. And the things that we say internally need to be the same things as as the things that we represent externally. And the brand promise that we bring to the market that allows an organization or allows a potential client who hasn't done business with us before to feel more confident in rolling the dice and doing business with us needs to resonate and be the same as the employee brand or that or, or that employee culture. We're in a mess right now. What advice would you give to somebody who is maybe in a compliance team or somebody who's on risk or somebody who's part of, you know, the PR department of their organization to kind of bring some of these things together? Because it's very disjointed and all this disjointedness really allows for a ton of risk to, po to potentially explode within an organization, kill a brand, kill shareholder value and all those other kinds of things. So my advice right now is the last basic chapter of my book is that what you're talking about is all the silos that we have in companies. Yep. So you just mentioned a bunch. You've got the compliance people, the PR people, whatever. Most of those people do not talk to one another. They don't share information. They, as a matter of fact, they protect that information because in a corporation, information's power. And I'm competing with that other department for budget and influence with the CEO and the board. This is, it causes tremendous risk when you think about it, because you have departments like you've got the, the let's say you have a brand manager that thinks they're still about just selling to the consumer, the hell with employees or anybody else. They still exist. You've got to figure out, you bring these people together into cross-functional group so that every, I call it every stakeholder facing function sales, marketing, PR, legal, investor affairs, everybody, they are brought together in a ongoing working group together with all the, with the business people. And their job is to one, understand the current state of stakeholder expectations and the externalities, how these all interact. Right. They're also charged with keeping track of changing expectations because expectations can change on a dime. Your competitors do something, new social changes, government changes, legal changes, and they map it. And so there is a way that I've been talking about understanding your stakeholders, mapping it and putting it together so that you can see if you make a given decision, how that is going to be viewed by different stakeholders. And you can make a choice. If you decide, you know, we, and that's what I think Allison Taylor is, I think Allison's brilliant. I yeah. mean, I, I, I just really like her. Um, you don't manage the reputation risk. You manage the expectations and tolerances of your different stakeholders. And she used the example of Norfolk Southern. They made a decision that all they wanted to do was make money. That was the beginning of their risk. Yes, they have reputation risk now, but it's crisis management. You know, they're trying to save what is their company and whether or not they're going to be overregulated and they're going to be in business in, in another couple of years right. and, and be tolerated. So if you bring all these people into a cross-functional team, that information needs to flow up to the board because the board needs to be able to say, oh, we understand now that these strategic opportunities to make more money, if we do that, how is it going to be received by employees? How's it going to be received by our customers? How's it going to be received by the investor community? And okay, investors are going to love it, but customers are going to see it as, what do we do? I mean, it's and a real-time so, stakeholder risk assessment is what it is. It is, absolutely. And you understand that, you know, what is risk? Risk is defined by risk people as the uncertainty of meeting objectives. Okay. So the, if you have no opportunity, you have no risk. But what have companies historically done? They get all excited about the 
financial opportunity. And then somebody comes in and says, oh, that's really risky. Well, that's why audit and internal audit are referred to as the department of no, because you get all excited about what you're going to do and they go, no, 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 no. And that was legal also. Get those people together so that the no's coming out and someone can say, okay, you're in compliance or you're in internal, you're in audit and you're saying no, but what if the opportunity is worth it? What if, you know, what Correct. if the risk is only a risk that we may lose some some customers, but this group of customers is going to buy more than we ever, can we suffer through that risk? Well, and when somebody's saying no, there's an implied, um, there's an implied risk framework that is the basis for that no. And if the trade-offs or if the actual risks um, for a particular decision are more fleshed out or if a change in direction is warranted, well, then we can change those uh, those risk lenses that are the bases for our our determination of whether we should do something or not. And, you know, when you were talking about, um, you know, what did you say? You said risk is the chance uh, that unknown... The uncertainty of meeting yeah, objectives. Yeah, yeah. uncertainty causing us to not meet objectives. That's essentially what risk right. is. Um, what's interesting is that many times when we try to de-risk, we end up falling victim to the same thing that comes along when we are sort of shooting from the hip because we don't have a true understanding of the complex risk landscape that we're traversing across, which in itself creates risk. And maybe I'm kind of circling back to something you said at the start, that reputational, uh, reputational risk is a risk of risks. Talk to me a little bit about that term, because I'd like to kind of dive a little bit deeper into that. Yeah, so let's understand that um, every risk you have, you know, credit risk, cyber risk, uh, liquidity risk, operational risk, strategic risk. When you think about the way companies, and I've worked with boards enough that you talk about risk and they go, oh, the audit committee handles risk. Or if they're a financial institution, they might have a risk committee. But it's essentially they're looking at financial risk. Well, what about operational risk, mm -hmm. which happen in companies all the time? What happens in strategic risk that you get the wrong information to make the wrong decision? or you don't have a sense of that, or you have a credit liquidity risk or whatever, all of these have the potential to become a reputation risk. Right, okay, so I see. you don't manage, you can't sit back and go, oh, we're gonna manage our reputation. You don't, you manage the risks against stakeholder tolerances of what you're doing. And if you exceed their tolerances or expectations, that's going to create risk. Right. If you're within those tolerances, those opportunities are going to be seen as something of benefit. Yeah, it's again sort of focusing on inputs or, or outputs. You know, if you're focusing yeah. on those outputs, you're going to be, uh, you know, kind of driving in the rearview mirror and you're going to be trying to manage your reputational risk, which to your point is a function of a bunch of other risks inside that multivariate equation. I just yeah, uh, I, don't think we're, I don't think you're that far off from the days of Vance Packard, who used to say, you show me a person's this long ago, cigarette and car, and I'll tell you exactly their personality type. You can include mirrors, you can include a lot of things. Those are self-reflections. And you know, we like to judge ourselves by the cars we drive and whatever. They are expressions of us. Yeah, and especially to the extent that, you know, someone doesn't like what Elon Musk is doing at Twitter and that's causing right. them to get rid of their Tesla. That's the perfect picture it's, of exactly. my goods, my products, the things that I'm loyal to are a true reflection of my views of the world and the values that I try to espouse and, you know, the purpose I'm trying to live out. Um, Absolutely. So this has been so much fun. I can't believe we blew through uh, our episode already. Um, I, I've really enjoyed it. Me Thank too. You so much. We should do something yeah. again um, soon. It would be really great. Um, tell folks where they can find a, uh, your book and where they can reach out to you and learn more. Okay. The book's on Amazon. It's available as a uh, Kindle. Uh, it's available soft copy or hard copy. Uh, it's called The Yin and Yang of Reputation Management, or you can, you can Google it under my name, Elliot Schreiber. You can reach out to me at uh, elliot.s.schreiber.gmail.com uh, or the book has a, a URL also that you can reach out and my publisher will get in touch with me. Awesome. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really enjoyed oh, our conversation. This is such an interesting area um, moving into like uh, deconstructing what reputation is and understanding the things that are going on with, within our organization that can lead to actual reputational risks can really allow us, many of us sort of Department of No folks to show a lot more value and really you know, we have our own sort of branding problem. We have our own sort of reputation problem that um, we're dealing with. And that's also a function of these expectations that uh, of the stakeholders around us. So really interesting right. uh, conversation, man. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will see you next time. Okay. Thanks, Nick. That was great, man. That was so great. Yeah, I, I loved was, it. I, that was fun.